how do we find an authentic, meaningful life? I like to choose very easy-to-tackle topics for my talks. Um, and this, first of all, what does authentic mean? When I say authentic, meaningful life, authentic doesn't mean genuine in the sense of transparent. It, what I mean is something that's free from mindless compliance. Um, to find a purpose or a meaning for life, that's not something that anybody can tell you. That doesn't exist outside of you. A meaning for life only exists in each individual. Because meaning is an individual thing. What has meaning for me might have no meaning for you. So what creates meaning in your life might very well be meaningless to me. You might be, Jesse, might, his meaning might be in painting and in serving others. For me, it might be a completely different meaning. So to say that there is an objective meaning for life is to engage in pure sophistry and proselytizing and to try to make other people conform. Each individual, each of you, must find your own meaning for your own life. And for it to be authentic, it cannot be provided for you by me, by anyone else. It has to be something that resonates deeply for you through your own experience. The Buddha said, don't believe me. Which is a pretty radical thing for a spiritual teacher to say. They generally say things like, be gone, Satan, in that kind of, you know, I am the holder of the truth. The Buddha said, don't believe me. Don't believe what you're taught. Don't believe common sense. Don't believe what people have tried to reason and logic out for you. When you see for yourself that this is true, that this rings deeply true, resonates true, follow that. And he goes on to establish from that uh, a very sense, he says to the people who are listening, when you act out of harm, in your experience, does that create an easy mind to be in or a mind that's filled with stress and rationalization and shame? And the people around him say, well, in our experience, when we act out of harmful intentions, we generally feel remorse and guilt. And so he says that's a good way to base, to start the process of finding your own purpose, your own meaning. It's through seeing which actions bring a sense of, of direction, a sense of ending that emptiness that addresses that lack that we feel as human beings, that fills us up with a sense of completion. So I would propose that what is uh, inauthentic and meaningless are lives that are completely conformist, without... Uh, putting aside the peer pressure and social influences and investigating for ourselves really where true contentment lies for each of us. To the degree that we ape the consumerism of our culture or we simply try to please a small group of people like our parents or our friends or we, uh, we just go in line that is, to me, inauthentic and hollow.
So, now, there are a lot of pressures placed on each of us to uh, not pursue uncovering the authentic for us, each of us. There is not only the endless hegemonic brainwashing of the culture around us, which says, you know, you need to get this. <laughs> you need this or that to be happy. You need financial, endless financial security gain to be secure. You need, uh, you need to fame or sent these sensual pleasures. You need to do this to be happy. And our friends many times, and uh, there's just so much indoctrination. It's very, and also, let's face it, we live in a capitalist system which has stripped away virtually all of the safety nets that even, the minuscule safety nets that used to be there in the 70s that provided some sense of enough security that people could experiment and explore and try to find authentic paths for their lives. I was reading this article, uh, or not article, an interview with... Um, Steve Reich, a hero of mine, he's like my favorite composer. Mm. And uh, Steve Reich said, you know, in the 60s, you could work two days or three days a month. And if you knew how to, you know, if you, we had a moving, he had a moving company with Philip Glass called mm. Chelsea Light Moving. Mm. Great name of a company. If I, was, if I was in a band, I'd call it Chelsea Light Moving. It would be a terrible band, but I was still a great man. <laughs> and uh, they, they, he said that me and, and Philip Glass, we worked like three, four days a month, and we had all the rest of the time to do our music and to live and to do, be in the Judson dance troupe and do all this stuff and find what, you know, find finally a music that was authentic and something to disavow everything we've been taught and to experiment until we found something that was unique and authentic. So, it takes, you know, when we're deprived of that, most of us now have to work far more than that to survive in New York. It's, it's hard to step outside of the grinds to just meet one's survival needs to open to that which might create a real deep sense of meaning for life. Another hero, Abraham Maslow, who's kind of existentialist philosopher, I'm all over the place, I like it, uh, <laughs> said that there's a hierarchy of needs, that we have to meet each need before we move on to a higher plane of authenticity. The first plane, he said, is just the physiological needs. We need to have food, shelter, and the Buddha said the same thing. The Buddha called it requisites. The Buddha said we need to have food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. And certainly in our society, that can mean a lot of effort to get that. But then there's a secondary need of attachment, which is connection with the tribe, because the human mind is set up for attachment, to feel secure, to feel regulated, to feel any sense of, um, of uh, real safety in life. But the highest he said, was the realm of self-actualization, where we find in each of us um, a potential that feels deeply addressing something core, 
something that is deeply felt, something that addresses that feeling of lack, something that uh, perhaps articulates all those difficult emotions that we've suppressed, something anyway that, um, that reaches to a core and creates a sense of filled. In other words, we no longer feel like that which is thrown into existence with a purpose. We suddenly feel like any tool, <laughs> it's bad to compare us with tools, but to feel that we have a purpose. And that, that a purpose is somehow addressed individually to, to, to me. So, how do we push ourselves to begin to find this authentic purpose, this meaning for life? Well, I like to think of three ways we can do it. The first is in the seeking out of altruistic endeavors. When we stop acting in terms of what makes us feel safe, what is in our best interest, what meets our survival needs, and when we give of our time and resources and love and compassion without expecting anything in return, somehow that triggers the, that lights up the right hemisphere's need for tribal connection and creates a sense of of worth and self-esteem that no amount of collecting money and consumer goods and and experiences for the self can um, can uh, give us. I've traveled a lot. I've done retreat. You know, I've gone to far-fetched places that have wonderful experiences, but still the feeling of doing the one-on-one work with people far touches me in a way that is not touched for being, uh, you know, on a beautiful island somewhere or amongst a different group of people. Traveling is wonderful, but but, uh, there's something about altruistic acts that, for me, uh, deeply show the mind that we can step outside of the need to just survive, that there's something higher than that. The second is in in retreats. I'm not. I know that I've mentioned two retreats, but I'm not selling them. So don't, you know, please. Uh, just going on a retreat. Go to a retreat with another Buddhist center, please. This is not a, an advertisement. But um, going on a retreat where we're pulled away from our comforts, all the distractions we've accumulated, the the niceties of you know, this is my bed which is tucked in just the way I like it, and here are my books, and here's my favorite uh, place I get my lunch from, and here's my favorite, you know, here's Netflix, with my favorite, my favorite show is now on. And, and to find that we can actually find great happiness and peace when we let go of everything that we've accumulated in the belief that we need these things to be happy, that actually a great sense of peace is available to us, even in those circumstances that are utterly foreign and deprived of what we normally consider to be uh, requisites. The retreat um, allows me to see that I need far less than the consumer-based indoctrination voice in my head, which is there that says, I need this thing. 
And finally, um, which will be uh, something I'll dwell on a little bit, um, death and loss. In my experience of death and loss create a radical alienation from so much of the busyness and drama and self-importance that can fill my life. My, my this is so important and, and my that and I can't believe it, I can't, uh, you know, get this thing done in the, in the time I've allotted it and all the stories and the, the things and, you know, when I get, uh, I'll give you a great example. I was reading this story of this guy who, uh, who was uh, given a diagnosis of a brain tumor and having six months to live. And he said that suddenly all of the little dramas in his life with his family disappeared. All of the, you know, he, he connected with the people that brought him happiness, even if there were squabbles, and he let go of the relationships that he was pursuing that no longer he found any real... Um, joy or sense of reciprocation and he stopped getting caught up and bent out of shape with the petty frustrations you know why is this bill on my who where did this come from and and uh, all of the frustrations that can drive us uh, crazy in a mundane basis and uh, so of course the the piece ended with he he finds out that it was all a mistake <laughs> and uh <laughs> It was all a mistake. In fact, it was, they misread his, his scan. There was no tumor. And he said that within one day, he got into a screaming argument with a cab driver about the best way to go uptown. When we don't remember our own mortality, when we lose touch of our, the finiteness of existence, when we lose touch with how uh, capricious life is, and that's... a it's great to be able to use a word like capricious because you never get to say it, really. <laughs> it came out, I was like, wow, the neural substrates that are picking that words are really working there. My, my mom would have been so proud to hear me drop that in. I probably used it wrong, but I'm pretending that I, that I used it right. How fickle is the nature of life? Uh, when we... Heidegger... Ooh, wow, there we go again. Heidegger said that to live an authentic life means to be towards death, means, which means to bear in mind our own mortality and every decision. Now, that doesn't mean us to be the only thing we bear in mind, because that would make us a pretty glum lot, but it does mean to bear it in mind. And it's not just the decisions, it's looking at the way we prioritize our lives. How am I spending my life? How much of my life am I spending worrying about uh, this project or that project? How much am I caught up in financial insecurity? How much am I caught up in uh, focusing on even good, meaningful endeavors? I've worked in my life a long time with... Uh, people who are really wonderful activists, but who can become so consumed in activism that they don't take care of themselves. And that's not authentic either. The way we spend our time, the way we spend our endeavors, bespeaks our priority, not the story we tell in our mind, the actual way 
we use up our lives, we spend our time, is denotes, is our real priorities. If I'm working and caught up thinking about my job 90% of the time, then I'm saying that that has 90% of my value, 90% of who I am or my sense of authenticity. That says that everything else in my life has only 10%, and that would be a deeply imbalanced life. So to use death really can make us force ourselves, when we're in in the presence of it, it can force us to really have to come to grips with um, and reevaluate how we're living our lives. Um, when my both my parents were dying, I, I, I made it a project to spend a lot of time going to hospice uh, to familiarize myself with it, because I realized that in our culture, we hide death. We hide, when people are aged, we put them in assisted living facilities and nursing homes to keep them out of sight. When people are uh, really in end stages, we tend to, a lot of times, they're separated from their families and put in hospital rooms rather than hospices. And when people die, they're whisked away into funerals where if they have an open casket, they're dressed up to look like they're alive. And so it creates a complete infamiliarity to the point where we think if something happens to the body or if somebody that, even if we know somebody who's in their 70s who dies, it can feel like there's something wrong that happened, like it's a mistake, when in fact this is what all life heads to. Bodies are meant to break down. They're not meant to go to endure. They're meant to break down. This state that we're in right now is a very fleeting one, and it will dissolve far sooner than we care for it. So it's only when we confront, uh, or at least if we, it, it really is important to have uh, some uh, experience of it. The Buddha constantly, again and again and again, talked about familiarizing oneself with death and decay. The first noble truth is looking at it. And in so many suttas, he said, meditate with being around bodies. He actually made that for his monks, that throughout the Buddhist realm, monks will go and meditate in front of corpses so that they remember that what they bear in mind their own death in every moment. It creates a sense of urgency. It creates a sense of reprioritization. It's so easy for the mind to uh, rationalize the choices that we make to just get caught up in the mundane responsibilities and obligations and to not step outside of the mundane and to evaluate our lives from a different perspective. And that's the only way we achieve anything that's authentic in life, is to step outside of the narrative that we've created and to look from a different perspective at how we're spending our time and to see if it really deeply resonates as true and as meaningful. When my friend Jake 
my, one of my closest friends suddenly died of an overdose. That was the moment that I decided that I could no longer ever set foot in an advertising agency again. I was, I was uh, paying for allowing myself to teach. I was, suppl- I was uh, supplementing my income by working as a, f- a, gr- a freelance graphic designer. But with his death, I looked at what I was doing at that time and it no longer had any remote, authentic, meaningful value to me. When 9-11 happened uh, was when I first decided that uh, I could no longer be the normal run-of-the-mill, for me, Buddhist practitioner, which meant I was working and then I was meditating for half an hour a day and I was sitting with monks, but I wasn't doing anything to deeply myself move into my spiritual practice in a way that was far more important than work. And so I immediately left my job, became freelance, and, and started rebalancing my life. Now, I'm not saying that this in any way has to be your path. You might uh, have an experience, whether it's a retreat, whether it's a volunteer, whether it's an experience with great loss or death, or whether, however you come across that moment that pushes you out of the story that we've been telling and the story that's provided for us about how we find happiness and makes us reevaluate our lives, you might find that it comes from being a playwright, a novelist, traveling and doing work with different cultures. It can take a million different forms. You might decide that it comes from largely activist, engaged social work. It comes from to every person in a different way. And there is no should so long as it doesn't cause harm. There's no shoulds about it. It's in each individual. So finally, the Buddha talked about one way to, on a daily basis, at least step back from the busyness of our lives, to take enough time to distance ourselves and to get a different perspective. And he calls it the five daily recollections. And it's not the, word, the actual words are not important, but it goes like this in one's meditation or just sitting quietly, just closing one's eyes and just thinking these five thoughts. I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to become sick. I am of the nature to die. Everything that is dear to me, I will be separated from. And all I will be left with at one point will be the results of my actions, how they feel. In other words, there will come a time when, whether through illness or death or loss or separation or whatever, there will come a time when all of the things will be separated from and we'll be just left with that residue of whether we've lived an authentic life that was harmless and compassionate or whether we've lived a life that was simply trying to make do. I like to believe that we don't have to only do this practice, but in my experience, if we meet five needs, we're in the, I believe we might be moving towards the right path. Yes, we do need to meet the requisites. We do need to maintain shelter. 
and food for ourselves. We do need to have some contribution to the greater good, some altruistic act. We do need to um, connect with people that are caring, that we can honestly disclose our emotions to, that tribe or that pack. We do need to explore and connect with our inner feelings to investigate our internal life. And finally, we do need to try to creatively express in some way or creatively address something that gives our existence a sense of unique, fulfilled Potential, something that resonates deeply within each of us, something that speaks to what Maslow said is that um, self-actualization. And that's up to you to find. So I hope there was something worth listening to somewhere in there. I really am grateful for your listening in. If you do choose to leave at this this time, which some people do, if you could remember to chip in so that we can pay the rent, which is always a, a difficulty. And um, at this point, we go to comments, questions, shares, anything that you like. We have about 15 minutes. So uh, any anybody have anything they'd like to... Uh, we need a brave practitioner who's generally... It's uh, until one person is brave. Hi. I'll be the brave one. Well, um, what's interesting about today's talk, like last week, uh, 